0: Welcome to What We Believe. This is a series that Bergen Park Church is putting together on the doctrinal statement of our church, the doctrinal statement of the Evangelical Free Church of America. So today we're going to be looking at the question of the human condition, the doctrine of the human condition. So I'm going to take you through this uh, point of our statement of faith, and we'll work through some of the important uh, parts of this particular point. So, Let me read this for you. We believe that God created Adam and Eve in his image, but they sinned when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under his wrath. Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. So how we understand the human condition affects how we understand the doctrine of salvation. These two doctrines are inextricably connected. So what you believe about the problems in the world will affect how you understand the solution to those problems. So every philosophical outlook assumes certain kinds of things about the human condition. Certain things about how we want to repair the human condition. And many of these assumptions fail to accurately depict reality. Let me give you a few examples. A few examples that, um, that we see in our, our culture, in our society today. So for example, Marxist philosophy, along with various forms of socialist idealism, and secular humanism assume that man is inherently good. Man, at his very core, is good. And if man is inherently good, then you can fix his problems through education, through opportunity, through economic equality. That's the idea. So when oppression and social inequality are removed, people begin to thrive because people are inherently good. They want what is good for themselves and for others. Now, to be clear on this, this is not what the Bible teaches about the human condition. It may sound good, but it doesn't correspond to reality. And in fact, this kind of thinking has led to a lot of suffering in our world. In another example, Eastern pantheistic philosophies or non-dualistic religions like Buddhism teach that the human condition is about desire and the elimination thereof. So if we eliminate desire, we eliminate pain. If we eliminate the passions in humanity, we eliminate suffering. And so to achieve this, meditation can help you shed your individuality and subsequently allow for you to be absorbed into this ultimate reality that is the universe. So you're nothing more than a drop of water that eventually will be rejoined to this vast ocean that is the universe. So your worth is not in who you are as an individual. You have no worth because there is no you. There's only the universe. To be clear, this is not what the Bible teaches about the human condition. This kind of ambiguous spirituality appeals to a lot of people, but it doesn't accurately describe reality. In another example, Extreme forms of environmentalism teach that humans are a disease, a curse on the flourishing of our planet. Strict control of the human population, if not the eradication of the human population, is the next evolutionary step in the development of our world. Just to be clear one more time, this is not what the Bible teaches about mankind. So what does... The Bible tell us about human beings. I think it's fair to say that human beings are something of value. We have great value in the eyes of God, and yet we are fallen. Some theologians and philosophers describe humans as the glory and the refuse of the universe. So what does the Bible tell us about this? Humans have value. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says that man is made in the image of God. This is something we call the imago Dei, the image of God. It means that we reflect his mind, we reflect his creativity, we reflect his moral agency. God has a special relationship with human beings. If you jump forward a few more verses to Genesis 1, 31, we read that man is very good. God's creation is very good. If you read through the first chapter of Genesis, you see that after each day of creation, God declares his creation good. But when we come to the sixth day, after mankind has been created, Adam and Eve, God declares it very good. Genesis 1 and 2, in fact, tell us that mankind, human beings, are given dominion over the earth. We are put in charge of God's creation, as stewards of God's creation. Job chapter 7 verse 17 says that God magnifies human beings. He magnifies human beings. In Psalm 8, we read that God created man just a little lower than the angels, the heavenly beings, and he crowned mankind with glory and honor. He gave him dominion over the birds of the air, animals, and fish things that that swim in the depths of the sea so man has value in the eyes of god if you go to psalm 139 particularly verse 14 it says here man is fearfully wonderfully made the psalmist says i am fearfully and wonderfully made in fact that entire psalm speaks to the value of human beings, that God is intimately involved with his creation, that he loves us, and that he knows us. And if you turn to the New Testament, there are a number of examples of this as well. You see this in the Gospels. Uh, I would point you to Matthew uh, chapter 10 on this, where we read that our Heavenly Father is aware of even when a bird falls from the sky, even the, the least of the creatures something that's insignificant in our eyes. If God cares for that creature, how much more does he care for his creation in mankind, human beings? So this is what the Bible says about our value. If you think about this as well, uh, Jesus gave his life to save human beings. God did not have a redemptive plan for angels. God's redemptive plan focuses on humanity. Salvation is focused on humans. So this attests to the value that we have as human beings. Man is great. Man is valued. But we also read in scripture that human beings are fallen, fallen into sin. There are a number of texts we could go to on this as well. Um, I'd point you to Genesis chapter 3. This is the the, the passage of Scripture where we read about what theologians often describe as original sin. The fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden where they ate the fruit from the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A tree from which they've been commanded, do not eat. And they disobeyed God and fell into sin. So Genesis 3, you could go to the Psalms as well. Um, Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Now, the fool in that passage is not an atheist. The fool is a person who lives as if there is no God because of that person's sin, their disobedience, their rebellion against God. If you go to Psalm 51, this is another excellent example of the fallenness of human beings. Psalm 51 is a psalm of David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and he he repents before the Lord. He declares that he was sinful from birth, sinful even from the time he was conceived. He recognizes that he was born in sin, that he is fallen. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20 reminds us that there is no one righteous. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 speaks of deceit and lies in the human heart. If you go to the New Testament, to Romans chapter 3, this is a classic text on the fallenness of human beings. Chapter three, verses nine through 18 in particular. There's no one righteous, not even one. It goes on to say that their their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And it says a number of other things about human beings and our fallenness. If you go to Ephesians chapter one, or sorry, chapter two, verse one, we read that we were once dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live. Spiritual death as a result of our sin condition. So man is fallen, man is lost. And so it it makes sense to conclude that we are in fact the glory and the refuse of the universe. We long for God and yet we hate God. God. We're made to serve our King, and yet we are prone to rebellion. We're a paradox unto ourselves, always at war between what God desires for us and what we desire for ourselves. Our desire for sin, in fact. So there are a couple of questions I think that naturally come out of this particular statement. on the human condition. A couple of questions that have come up to me as I I read this statement, things that I would be curious about. And the first question is, is this, are we being punished for Adam's sin? Are we being punished for Adam and Eve's sin? Because our statement of faith says that Adam and Eve sinned and that we, in union with them, are sinners by nature and by choice. So what does it mean to be in union with Adam in sin, it kind of sounds like we're being punished for something somebody else did. We're being made to bear the consequences of somebody else's rebellion against God. So why should we suffer for something Adam did? So I want to take a look at that question here um, before we turn to our second um, question uh, today. So are we being punished for Adam's sin? There are a couple of texts I think we can go to that will help us um, understand this. So we'll take a look at 1 Corinthians 15 and, and Romans 5. But what's important here is that how we understand our union with Adam in sin is subject to some discussion amongst theologians and biblical scholars. And, and here in the, in the free church movement and at Bergen Park Church, we do allow for some latitude on how exactly we understand these doctrines, but I do think, again, it's going to be important to go to Scripture and to go to these two texts that I've noted, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5. I think this will help us understand what we're dealing with here. So 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 21 and 22 in particular, and I would encourage you, read the whole chapter, read it in its context, even pause the video and and look at this in, in more depth, but the verses I want to really focus on here are these two pertinent verses, 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So the focus, uh, focal point here is really this idea that in Adam all die. In Adam, all die. Now, turning to Romans chapter 5, and again, I'd encourage you to read the, the whole chapter, understand the context, the, the, the broader context. But here, I just want to look at a couple of verses that I think are essential on this particular point. So, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So again, the idea here is that sin came into the world through one man, through Adam. And so this sin spread into the rest of the world. And then skipping to verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, So, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So, again, the idea here is that by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So, that is what Scripture tells us about our union with Adam in sin. So based on these these passages, I would tend toward the idea held by many theologians, by many biblical scholars that Adam is in fact our representative. Adam is our representative. What he did bears on all of us. Moreover, anything he did, it's safe to conclude we would have done. You might look at it this way. Adam was driving the bus when it went off the cliff. All of humanity was on that bus. So wherever Adam drove the bus, we went there with him. Now, that might not seem fair, but the reality is, if you're on that bus, you're going where the bus goes. If he's driving the bus, and he drives it off that cliff, that's exactly where you're going to end up. Now, you still might object and claim that, now, if you'd been in the garden, if you'd been Adam, if you had been Eve, you wouldn't have rebelled against God. You wouldn't have eaten that fruit. You would have known better. Somehow, in our superior wisdom and foresight, we suspect that we wouldn't have listened to Satan. But that's not what Scripture tells us. We would have done the same thing. We may have done worse. In fact, Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 23 when he speaks to the Pharisees. And he confronts them on their hypocrisy because the Pharisees at the time were saying things like this. Had we been alive in the time of our forefathers, we wouldn't have sinned. We wouldn't have have persecuted the prophets. We wouldn't have worshipped idols. And yet Jesus confronts them and says, of course you would have. You're hypocrites. You would have done the same thing. You would have done worse. You see, in Adam all die, we would have eaten that fruit. We're in this together as human beings. But I think something that's important to understand as we look at this doctrine of union with Adam in sin is that there is good news. There's another side to this story, and if you were paying attention to what we read in 1 Corinthians and in Romans 5, there is uh, some good news for us. It tells us that there's another bus driver, Right? Adam drove the bus off the cliff, but there's a second Adam, a second bus driver, Jesus Christ, who gets us back on the right road. So in the same way that sin and its consequences were imputed to us in Adam so also is righteousness and its benefits imputed to us through the second Adam, through Jesus Christ. Again, as Romans 5 says, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, the work of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, leads to justification and life. Right? So we look to Jesus Christ So I would suggest that instead of worrying about being punished for something Adam did, we instead rejoice in being rewarded for something Jesus did. So just as sin was imputed to us through Adam, so is life and salvation, justification imputed to us through Jesus Christ. So that's the first issue I wanted to address in this particular point of our doctrinal statement but the second question I think that may haunt some people is, is this. How alienated from God are we? Okay, we know that we're fallen, but how fallen? How bad is our situation? Are we adrift at sea, flailing in the water, waiting to grasp the life ring? Or are we swollen corpses, dead at the bottom of the sea? And really, how we answer this question uh, is going to affect how we understand God's role in salvation. So like I said earlier, the doctrines of the human condition and salvation are linked. What you believe about the human condition is going to affect what you believe about salvation. And again, there is some latitude on how we answer this question. There's going to be some disagreement among Christians on exactly how we're going to understand Uh, The human condition. Now, some would suggest that we go part way in faith, and then God steps in and takes us the rest of the way. He takes us the rest of the way by his grace. Others, however, suggest that we are spiritually helpless, that we are powerless to express faith apart from God's gracious intervention. So it's all God's work. Now, I tend toward agreement with the latter position in this age-old debate. Uh, What's important, however, um, the degree to which you are corrupted by sin, again, is going to affect the degree to which God's grace is needed in your regeneration. So I think Ephesians 2 is important because it tells us that we are dead. We are dead in sin. Dead in our transgressions and sins. And dead bodies honestly don't reanimate themselves. Right? Skeletal remains do not claw their way up out of their coffin. Nor do they dig themselves out of their graves to reanimate their cells. Or to restore life to their vital organs. It doesn't work that way. Radical corruption leaves us dead. Spiritually decomposed corpses. Our sin naturally binds us in slavery. That is the language of scripture. Only something outside of us, outside of ourselves, can restore life, can bring hope. Only something greater than us can break the bonds of sin. And so rather than despair at the realities of the human condition, our greatness and our wretchedness I suggest that we learn to delight in the fact that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. This is a gift of God. So no matter where we land on the question of the human condition, all Christians, all Christians are going to affirm that it is by grace that we are saved. It is a work of God. We don't have to tread water waiting to grasp at the life ring. Christ, the second Adam, does the rescuing, as we read in, our, in, in this point of, of our statement of faith. He does the rescuing, he does the reconciling, he does the renewing. And so we're going to talk about this a little bit more when we get to the fifth point of our doctrinal statement, and this will be on the work of Christ, and that'll come up um, soon. But in the meantime, I want to encourage you that, that though we are glorious and yet fallen, Though we have value and though we are wretched, God has not abandoned his creation. He has a plan of salvation for us.